This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, September 7th, 2016. I'm Caleb Brown. In fact, we may all be a little bit protectionist. It's a basic impulse, according to Cato Senior Fellow Dan Pearson, that the benefits of trade require a sort of multi-stage thinking for us to reject those protectionist impulses. We spoke yesterday. Well, I think that we have kind of a fundamental uh, protectionist bias. Uh, I mean, I'm not saying we're all protectionists, but our evolution was such that in our the groups of hunters and gatherers that our ancestors were in for tens of thousands of years, they had to be self-sufficient. And people who weren't self-sufficient didn't survive. And so I think that very strong concept of taking care of ourselves, taking care of the small group, that worked its way into our gene pool, and we still live with that every day. I mean, there are a couple of ways you can acquire stuff, and trade is the least problematic of those. Oh, yes. You know, our, our ancestors, of course, they would have constantly been under threat. If they ran into another uh, group, um, they would always be wondering, okay, are these people uh, just looking for sustenance like we are, or are they on the warpath? And until, until it was determined that these uh, foreigners were safe, there was a great deal of, of hesitation and suspicion. Once there was enough trust to allow uh, a discussion, then trade started to happen because the one group would have some cowrie shells that were very pretty that they had in excess, and the other group would have some new arrowheads, and trade would happen, and both sides would come out ahead, and everyone in the group would understand that they had come out ahead in that exchange. It was very tangible, unlike international trade today, which takes place at a great distance and across borders that we can't see. Uh, Some of the criticisms that people have for bankers, for uh, the amounts of money that CEOs of various companies are paid, part of it is that the fact that we don't exactly know what it is they do. We can't exactly put our finger on the value that they're actually delivering. The same seems to be true of trade as, as, a, as an international uh, institution, because we don't actually see what kinds of you know hundreds of thousands, millions of decisions that are actually made in the process of uh, constructing and moving goods from one place to another. Right. Our, our instinct towards self-sufficiency did not accommodate Adam Smith's concept of the invisible hand, of, of accepting that in the economy, if everyone works to their own best interest, that the economy as a whole will, will do well, that the resources will be well allocated, and that people's needs will get met. Uh, that's, that's a rather sophisticated economic concept that was not obvious uh, a few million years ago. Uh, you point out that countries imposing import restrictions uh, will always do more damage to their own economies than to the economies of exporting nations, but that doesn't change the fact that uh, politicians are able to get people to cheer at, at the very idea of you paying more for goods that are coming in from out of country. Right. It's just that basic contrast between our instincts, our our reactions, and the economic realities, which, you know, gut instincts are are simple and visceral. You you feel them. 
to understand the concepts requires a little bit of higher level thought. And, and economists clearly aren't the only ones capable of that. But over the years, they've done a lot of it. I mean, as, as a simple example, David Ricardo, 200 years ago, worked out the concept of comparative advantage. And what that basically means is that you should never try to be self-sufficient if there's anyone around to trade with who can do something that you can do better. It's, it just it, it hurts your own welfare if you are trying to do everything yourself. A whole lot is made of Donald Trump's uh, anti-trade uh, rhetoric. He's the one who was able to get cheers out of a crowd for threatening, a, I don't know, 25, 35% tariff on carrier air conditioners that, that might be coming into the U.S. from Mexico. And uh, But Hillary Clinton's trade record isn't that much better. Well, her record is marginally better because she actually has at times voted in favor of trade, okay? We're not hearing it from her at the moment. Sure. Uh, but, but I say a pox on both their houses. They, they both are uh, responding to the pressures of the moment to close the borders, and neither of them are understand the issues well enough or have the courage to articulate why that is not a good response, not a good policy for the United States to implement. It would hurt us if we do it. Donald Trump has made a lot of hay out of Carrier and their decision to move more production uh, outside of the United States. You say they get a bad rap. Absolutely. Um, Carrier for many years has been manufacturing air conditioners both in the United States and in Mexico. They understand well what the business climate is in each of those countries. They know what the relative costs are. And they obviously made a decision that was based on their own circumstances of what was best to the long-term future of the company. Now, the uh, my take is that it would be unwise for the United States to put an import tariff up against imports of air conditioners from Mexico. I mean, the real challenge is how can we get our own business climate to where it should be? A point that I've raised is that the United States has anti-dumping duty orders on some 160 different categories of steel from various countries. And it's got anti-dumping duty orders on aluminum extrusions and copper tubing, both of which are really important inputs for air conditioning for the heat exchangers. If Carrier could escape all of that riffraff simply by moving its operations to Mexico. And so the, the U.S. policy has been one that has d discouraged Carrier from staying in this country. So if, if we want to criticize the circumstances that led Carrier to leave, we should criticize our own policies. Assume somebody is listening who is uh, maybe has no particular uh, personal stake in uh, trade as an issue. That is to say, they don't work for an American manufacturer that may be threatened or something like that. What do you argue to them to say, "Look, this is this is these are the stakes of shrinking from the rest of the world with regard to trade"? Well, the, the, there are, are quite a few. We. By, by closing our own borders or restricting our imports, we are going to make things more expensive for U.S. consumers, and we will have a, a net loss to our economy by doing that. By uh, not being willing to pursue trade agreements that will further liberalize barriers, we are going to be saying, we like the current restricted nature that keeps us from being as well off as we could be. 
these are not intelligent approaches. I would offer a rule of thumb for politicians and anyone else wanting to think about these issues. And if the, the, the question that comes up is, uh, should we have uh, trade or shouldn't we, the populist instinct may be to push against it, to say, no, 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 let's go for self-sufficiency. But the rule of thumb would be, listen to your populist instincts, but then do the opposite because the opposite is going to give you a better economic result. I also would say that it's, it's easy to look at the economics from a 30,000-foot level, which is what we've done in this conversation. But I don't think we should minimize the adjustment challenges facing people who might be losing their jobs because of uh, trade increases. Uh, the best study I've seen on this indicates that of job losses, some 85% have been due to technology change, to computers and robots and related things. But some percentage, somewhere around 13 to 15%, is due to trade or has been in this in the study that was done at Ball State University. So I, I don't think we should wish that away and say it doesn't exist. The challenge to society is to figure out how can some assistance be provided to the people who are losing out, if indeed we wish to provide it, how can that be provided in a way that does not restrict trade? And there are plenty of ways to do that. We're not hearing the candidates speak about those. Dan Pearson is a senior fellow in trade policy studies at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to this and rate this podcast at iTunes, Google Play, and with Cato's iOS app. And follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.